Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Brandon Munro, CEO of Bannerman Resources, an AX, ASX and NSX listed exploration and development company with a 95% interest in the Intego Uranium project in Namibia. Um, I want to get Brandon on the podcast to discuss all things uranium as he's an expert in the sector um, and also, he's an author of a book called Uranium Insights. Um, he's also the chair of the Nuclear Fuel Demand Working Group within the World Nuclear Association. Um, so he, he's entranced in the sector. Um, and I'm definitely getting myself, getting to understand and also invest in, in this sector, um, which I imagine is, is probably unpopular, um, but it's a necessity, um, as I'm sure Brandon will explain um, and what is happening in the market today and what is going to be sort of happening in the future. So I want to welcome Brandon on the podcast. How are you doing, Brandon? Yeah, really well. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on. No, and I appreciate your time as well. So just wondered if you can um, give us a, a background about yourself um, from obviously from when you uh, graduated and and I suppose how you developed your career. Um, and then I've got some questions and I suppose how you got into the uranium sector. So um, I hand it over to you. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Look, I graduated in Perth, Western Australia with degrees in economics and law and uh, worked as a lawyer for about the first 10 years of my career. Western Australia is predominantly a resources centre. And because it's so isolated, it really had a lovely degree of uh, corporate uh, self-sufficiency for what is otherwise a really small town. So what that meant is as a young lawyer and in business, you were able to get exposed to literally world-class deals whilst living in a city that didn't have many more than a million people at that stage. So that was a really quite a unique combination and something that I really enjoyed in the first part of my career. Now, inevitably, as a lawyer and um, in uh, subsequent employment, there was a heavy emphasis on resources. So initially, I worked in capital markets and mergers and acquisitions, and I would say probably three quarters of the deals that we were doing would have been for various types of resources companies. And when I left private practice, I went to a company called GRD Limited, who owned at the time the McRae's Gold Mine in New Zealand. They owned some renewable energy subsidiaries, and they also owned the um, GRD Minproc, which is now part of the AMEC group. And at that stage, it was the largest process engineering firm in the world, specialising in minerals process engineering. So that was a really nice background uh, working on the commercial side, but most of the transactions that we had tended to have quite a sophisticated legal component, hence why I was able to cut my teeth doing that. And I would say about 10 years ago, I entered the uranium sector. So my first executive role in this sector was 2009, working for Bannerman as general manager at that point, lived in Namibia for five or six years, which I really enjoyed. 
and joined the company as CEO five years ago in 2016. Okay. And obviously you, you mentioned that, the, that you were a GM and now obviously you're the CEO. Um, so I just wanted you to give us a brief overview of the company um, and obviously your role as the CEO. So Bannerman is entirely focused on our Itango uranium project in Namibia. We've been doing that since 2006. And I think that really benefits us because on the one hand, it means that we've got a huge amount of knowledge of both the project and the country and how things operate in Namibia with a strong presence throughout that time. But it also positions us very well in the nuclear sector. So the nuclear energy sector is a very large sector. It's a, quite a conservative sector. And they don't generally take well to companies who flip-flop between different minerals or reinvent themselves as many ASX-listed companies need to do to survive. So we've got a degree of pedigree, both in terms of our consistency in this sector and with our project, and also in terms of our leadership in the industry. And that's helped a lot. Um, just a couple of uh, facts and figures on a tango. So it uh, is one of the largest undeveloped uranium projects in the world. So a very, very large resource. It's uh, proposed to be an open pit bulk mining heat leach operation. Uh, in many respects, quite similar to the Rossing uranium mine, which Rio Tinto developed uh, in the 70s and has continued in production ever since for about 45 years. And that mine is about 30 kilometres from us. Uh, there's also the Husab uranium mine, which is about 20 kilometres from us, which is being run by China General Nuclear, one of the uh, two largest nuclear utilities in China. And uh, we're not that far from Langer Heinrich, which is the Paladin Energy-owned mine that's currently on care and maintenance. And uh, it's a very advanced project as well. So we've got our environmental approvals in place. We completed a definitive feasibility study uh, back in 2015. So it's been through all of those de-risking processes, including the construction of a demonstration plant where we ran a pilot plant for about three years. Now, what's been quite interesting and uh, you know, really quite stimulating from my perspective is August last year, we released a scoping study into what we've called Itango 8. And what that means is that Tango 8 is a reimagined development pathway for our Tango project, where we've taken what was really a giant project and made it smaller so that we have a more streamlined project that has lower development hurdles so that we can get into production sooner. And then once we're in production and profitable, we've got the option of then expanding our production uh, if necessary, back to the original giant scale. So it's increased both the leverage to the uranium price, but also the flexibility with which we can operate and means that we can get into production sooner, which in our case, we think will be by 2025. Okay. Um, you mentioned, obviously, you've been in uranium for a decade. What made you join the, the uranium sector over uh, sort of other sectors? Well, it's an interesting question, Rob, because back in 2009, uranium and nuclear power wasn't particularly popular in a place like Australia. Um, Namibia, of course, is very different because that's a country that's benefited a lot from uranium mining and much of the infrastructure in the company has been built from uranium mining. So there's very strong social 
support and government support in Namibia. But I made that decision when I had returned to Australia in 2009. Um, now, for me, the, the biggest um, aspect of that was wanting to make a contribution uh, to the key challenges that we face as a planet. And climate change was already quite visible at that point. I'd worked, as I said, um, within a company that uh, was quite a prominent renewable energy player back in the early 2000s. Uh, so I was general counsel for Global Renewables, which at that stage we were bidding on and subsequently won one of the largest infrastructure projects ever in renewable energy and waste management in the UK. And whilst I'd been exposed to the need for renewable energies and the pathway for clean energy uh, as an absolute necessity in the world, I'd also become to understand some of the shortcomings of renewable energy at about the same time that I came to understand the tremendous advantages for nuclear energy. Now, there's no nuclear energy industry in Australia, so your pathway to making a difference in that respect, of course, is through the mining and the resources. So I retooled myself, you might say, from being a lawyer, and uh, at that stage I was working in finance, and uh, decided to join the sector as an executive. And I found that the opportunity to do that with Bannerman ticked both the big picture boxes in terms of wanting to make a dent in the universe and wanting to make a real difference, but also some of the more detailed boxes in terms of the way that Bannerman conducted itself in Namibia, um, the strength of its project and its community relations and its environmental footprint and so on. I, I just found tremendously appealing. And I think once I'd spent a bit of time in country in Namibia, and as I say, I lived there for five or six years, I came to understand that it's a, such a pleasure being involved in a large scale project in a country like Namibia, which probably operates as a, as a good anagram for any developing country. And that's because you can, you can really have such a big impact on so many lives. So if I look around in Australia, for example, it's, yes, you can help people, but it's not that easy to have a fundamental transformative impact on somebody's life because, you know, the government and the society covers most bases for people. Whereas you move that to the African context where there's still huge amount of unemployment, education and health issues um, and, uh, a very motivated population who just simply don't have opportunities to channel that motivation. When you develop a project that has the potential to hire over a thousand people and create say six times that many indirect jobs and uh, six times that many people supported through family networks, it, it's a huge privilege and responsibility to be able to have that sort of impact on that number of people. So we've still got a bit of way to go with Bannerman to achieving that level of impact. But, uh, you know, I can really say that in my five or six years in country, I had that direct and sometimes indirect transformative effect on scores, if not hundreds of people. And, and that's a really powerful motivator. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, one question I've just thought of, um, how are you received by others within your, within your industry? Obviously, you're based in Perth. Um, surrounded by many gold mining companies, iron ore companies. How are you received if you, for instance, if you're in a conference um, and you're talking to various people 
um, and you tell them you're in uranium, how are you received? Are most people within the industry are aware of what uranium actually stands for? Or are they really questioning you so they are actually understand what, what uranium is and what, it's, and what it means? Oh, within the resources sector, there's a very good understanding. And Australia still has 30% of the world's uranium resources, um, the largest of any country. Uh, we've got a long history of uranium mining in Australia, even though it has been curtailed by political decisions along the way. And there's a good crossover between geologists and engineers in Australia who will have worked on copper or gold and uranium for that matter. Um, so we don't see what I would regard as unfair prejudices against uranium or in, in fact, nuclear power amongst the resources sector. Um, it's heavily laden with scientists and people who um, don't have radiological fears or radiophobia, which holds back a lot of other people. Now, 10 years ago, uh, if you'd uh, rephrase that question and instead of being at a conference, we were at a barbecue, well, then it was really quite different. Um, I've uh, always been very proud of being in this sector and I did a lot of personal due diligence before joining it as an executive. So I've always been comfortable saying in a big, loud voice at a barbecue, no, I work in uranium and I work in nuclear power and then wait for some of the drawn breaths and some of the people who just sort of wander away from the table and all of those implications. But what I've really noticed though, Rob, is that's changed enormously just in the 10 years that I've been in the industry. And more often than not, if I'm asked the question, what do I do? And I tell people that I'm very proud to be addressing the climate change challenge through contributing to the nuclear power sector, rather than raised eyebrows, I'm more likely to get someone say, you know what, I can't agree more. I can't believe we don't have nuclear power in Australia. Good on you. All of this talk about X, Y, Z is rubbish. So a lot of people now, they've effectively come to the same conclusion themselves. And they're not sure who they can talk to about that because they're also worried if they say that out loud, uh, they're going to have people across the dinner table from them uh, not wanting to engage in that conversation or worse, still deciding that they're bad people. And the more conversations I have, the more I realise that, in fact, that's just not the case. More yeah. and more people yeah. are realising how profound a positive impact that nuclear power can have when the world is facing enormous challenges over the next three decades. So would you say a lot of people are aware of uranium? And this is probably not necessarily people within the industry, but outside of the industry, like you said, at a barbecue. Are they aware of what uranium is? And also, or are they quite inquisitive? Um, I know if I mentioned uranium here in the UK, I know that it'd be a, it'd be a negative effect um, or just probably because they're not educated. Um, so would you say they're pretty educated or would you say they're inquisitive and want to find out more? Uh, there's still a blend. There's no question. There's, there's people who've made their mind up, whether they know much about it or not. There's people who are open-minded and inquisitive and there's those people who are thoroughly supportive and there's a spectrum, of course. What we've certainly found, though, is that most likely and more often than not, people who put a bit of time into understanding both nuclear power and the role of uranium in providing nuclear power, they tend to come out as supporters, particularly if they enter that um, inquisitive phase with an open mind. Um, and, and that's just simply a function of 
so many of the attributes of nuclear power being irrefutable science and fact-based. So the anti-nuclear campaigners rely very heavily on emotion and they're careful not to delve into facts too, too much or they prefer to use their own version of facts that are often either cherry-picked or perhaps they're very old and using old technology suits their purposes. But when someone has an open-minded and honest look at those facts and the science behind it, it, it is very, um, I, I would say it's almost irresistibly appealing um, when people are looking at that source of information with a mind to how do we solve climate change and how do we create a power base that's clean and how do we deal with the huge pollution challenges in the world. So, so what do, why does the world need uranium? I suppose for people that only know so much about uranium, what would you say? Why would you say the world does actually need uranium, and what's it what's it pre predominantly used for? Well, the uranium that's mined in the world today is used exclusively in the production of nuclear power. So, there was a time during the Cold War where uranium was mined for nuclear weapons. Those stockpiles of weapons have been decreasing rather than increasing over the last 30 years and uh, decreased enormously, particularly since a large part of the Russian arsenal or the former USSR arsenal was then downblended and converted into fuel grade nuclear or fuel grade uranium for use in nuclear power stations. There's a tiny bit of uranium that's used in the production of isotopes for medicine and nuclear, the nuclear energy industry has had a very big positive impact on medicine. But that's so insignificant as a proportion of the mined uranium that you can pretty much ignore it. Now, as for why it's so important, well, as we stand today, nuclear energy produces about 10% of the world's electricity. So that's already a big number, but in markets like the US, for example, nuclear energy produces more than 50% of the clean emissions-free energy in the US. So if the US weren't already producing 20% of their power from nuclear energy, they would have an awful difficult steep hill to climb or mountain to climb for them to be able to decarbonize. So it's got a very important role to play today but also going into the future. And bear in mind that uranium is an unsubstitutable fuel for nuclear power reactors at the moment. So put more simply, if the world stopped mining uranium, then 10% of the world's electricity would cease to function. And more importantly, the large source of 24-7 baseload resilient emissions-free power that nuclear energy generates would not be able to play a role in our climate mitigation challenges. Yeah. Um, why don't you give, you give us an overview of the state of play of uranium? Um, I've, been, I've been obviously understanding the, the sector a lot more than, say, six, nine months ago. Um, understand there's obviously a lot of operations that have sort of um, been put on care and maintenance. Um, there's obviously big supply and demand issues, or maybe not right now, but there will be in, in coming years. So I just wondered if you can give us an overview of, I suppose, from a global perspective around supply and demand. I understand, obviously, the price of uranium is probably about $30, $30 a pound, and it needs to go up to probably 50 before everyone starts to then start producing 
um, or start to open up mines and build mines, etc. So I just wanted to give us a, a broad overview of the global uh, uranium supply and demand. Well, what we've had over the last 10 years is a bear market that was impacted most um, the most by the Fukushima nuclear accident that happened as a result of the Great Tohoku earthquake and resulting tsunami in Japan in 2011. What that did was created a period of oversupply of uranium in our industry. And that was because the producers were all operating their mines according to long-term contracts. And what Fukushima did was the public perception around that accident generated negative political perspectives in Japan and Germany, and about 10% of the world's reactors were shut down in a very short period of time. And only some of those reactors have come back online in the period since. So we had a 10% hole punched out of demand without any corresponding reaction from supply. So as a result of that, over five, six, seven years, a, a stockpile is built up and an inventory is built up that suppressed the uranium price. Now, the two largest producers in the world, Cameco out of Canada and Kazatomprom out of Kazakhstan, both recognised this and from 2017 started to implement supply cuts. Um, so, for example, as we stand today, the world's largest producing uranium mine MacArthur River in Canada has been turned off until the market tightens. And then we've got an overlay of COVID-related disruption that has also tightened the market. So today we're in an unusual situation where there's quite a pronounced primary deficit. In other words, the uranium that is mined and generated through secondary supplies in the world is significantly less than the amount of uranium that is consumed via consumption in nuclear power plants. For now, that deficit is being met through the drawdown of these excess inventories that were built up in the way that I described. And therefore, that deficit has not had a huge impact on price. And as you say, the uranium price is at about $30 at the moment, compared to its peak of $136 back in 2007. So it's still well and truly in a bear market. But the effects of that bear market have been uh, a decimation of the amount of investment in this sector since 2011. Uh, only a handful of projects that are ready to come on in the next few years. And also a cost structure in the industry where a significant proportion of current production is more expensive than the current spot price of $30. And again, the only reason they're still in production is they're getting a blended price between the long-term contract price that they might have written before Fukushima and the current spot price. And that blended price keeps them above water, but in many cases only just. So what that adds up to, Rob, is a situation where I and most industry commentators would concur that a price rise is inevitable. Without a significant price rise, the sector will experience a widening and deepening deficit that could lead to this very important source of energy being unavailable in certain markets. And that's just uh, a situation that is very hard to imagine, in which case prices will need to rise to incentivize new production. Um, the one comment I'd make is 
uh, you characterize that inflection point as, say, $50 a pound. I believe it needs to be significantly more than that. There are a few smaller producers of uranium who could start up at $50 a pound, but um, most of the industry and certainly the larger potential producers in our industry will need prices in the range of $60 to $80 a pound before they can justify the cost and expense and risk of starting a uranium mine. At $50 a pound, all that we'll see is some of the uh, mines that are currently on care and maintenance coming back on and maybe three or four small producers. And that won't be enough to address the current deficit that we've got, let alone the growing deficit that we will see as older mines start to turn off and as the ore bodies and the mining reserves of existing projects start to deplete. So what are the factors that will make that uranium price rise? Um, is it money coming into the industry? Is it government regulations or government intervention? Um, why would that price rise? What, what are the contributing factors? Predominantly, it will rise because of supply and demand and the economics of this industry. And I say that because the utilities, although they wrote a lot of contracts before Fukushima, and those long-term contracts continued after Fukushima and continued into this bear market, they haven't written very many contracts during the last three years, for example. And they're experiencing what we call in the industry uncovered demand. In other words, they know their demand because nuclear power plants are very long-life assets. Uh, they run at full capacity and they're very predictable in terms of how much uranium they consume. So demand is known, but only a proportion of that demand is covered. In other words, only a proportion of that demand has corresponding sales contracts that give the utilities confidence that they can get that supply. So what we will see in this sector is as we get closer to a high proportion of utilities demand for uranium being uncovered, in other words, not being supplied by a known locked-in contract, the utilities will need to come back into the market and start contracting for that additional supply. That's when the uh, deficit that we're experiencing will be exposed, exposed in an economic sense, and, and also when we'll start to see price discovery. And what we see from history in this sector is utilities tend to act at the same time, and they tend to follow each other. So one or two utilities, particularly larger influential nuclear power utilities, who then commence contracting in the public market, tend to encourage a bunch of other utilities to do the same thing. And that quickly exhausts the cheaper sources of uranium. Uh, it, they then find themselves buying up the more moderate sources of uranium and then the more expensive sources of uranium. And ultimately, that uh, demand will expose the fact that without additional new mines coming into production, there is no uranium to meet the final tier of that uncovered demand. And that's when pricing will rise to an incentive price where these new mines, including our own, will say, okay, well, if you're prepared to offer a contract at this price, then we will go to financiers and we will make a final investment decision and we will raise the money to build our mine. Yeah. So it's sort of building momentum within the industry. Um, what would you say, when is that tipping point when 
it will start to, and it's probably the million dollar question, but when is, when is that tipping point when momentum will start to build or is it already starting to build now? It is already starting to build, although we're not seeing that momentum building in term contracting. Um, the aspects that are building is the recognition of what needs to happen is well known. It's certainly well known amongst investors and it's becoming much better known amongst utilities and the industry at large. Now, the reason that that hasn't translated into term contracting and demand for uranium for delivery in a few years' time and further is because nuclear utilities are operating in markets that are very challenged by COVID and all of the subsidiary and secondary effects of that. And uh, so in many cases, the large-scale energy producers have got more pressing concerns and priorities to deal with this month and next month rather than starting to buy the fuel that they will need for their reactors in three years' time. And so that's created a, de a delay. Now, the corollary of that is that these delays, of course, create greater volatility because this demand has not gone away. It's, uh, it's still there. And it just means that the buying of uranium to meet this demand will be done in a more concentrated way in a shorter period of time, which, of course, creates the market dynamics that uh, lead to such effects as an overshoot. And as I say, the overshoot that we had during the last uranium boom saw uranium spot prices as high as $136 a pound. And term contract prices spend uh, eight or nine months at about $95. Okay. Um, I want to sort of um, go back to, uh, obviously, your project in, uh, in um, Namibia. Um, so I just wondered if you can give us a, an overview of how that's developing um, and a little bit about the project and the, the scope of works. Yeah, I'd love to. So as I said before, we completed a scoping study and released that to the Australian Stock Exchange back in August last year. And the next step for that is a PFS or pre-feasibility study, which we're busy with. We expect that to be completed by middle of this year. And uh, we're getting to the pointy end of that in terms of getting our numbers through. And we're looking forward to that. Now, from there, we expect to move straight on to a definitive feasibility study. And it's a little bit early to know for sure, but we think that'll take between nine and 12 months to complete. Where we've got a real advantage is that normally for a project as large as this, there would be a huge amount of cost and time and work involved to progress from a scoping study to a PFS to a DFS. But we've got the advantage here that we've already done all of that work on a larger scale project. Um, in other words, the originally anticipated Itango. So to give you a little bit of, uh, to give you some reference points there on the numbers, the original Itango project was expected to produce at the rate average of 7.2 million pounds of uranium per annum. Now that's enough to supply 16 to 17 conventional nuclear reactors. So you know, depending on what country you're in, that's about $100 billion worth of capital investment into nuclear power stations. We've decreased that with the Itango 8 project that I'm referring to, but we're still at about 3.5 million pounds per annum annual production over a long mine life. So it's still a very large project. 
And because of all the work that has been done, as we progress through this feasibility study process, we don't have some of the conventional risks that investors would normally expect to be watching out for that sometimes leads to resources projects stumbling at this point. So we don't have environmental risk because we already have our environmental approval and all of that baseline and assessment work has been undertaken already. We don't have resource drilling risk. So we've drilled an enormous number of holes, over 300 kilometres of drilling into our ore body. We know it extremely well. And so there's neither the risk nor the expense nor the time of needing to continue drilling that resource during the PFS and DFS phase. And also metallurgical risk uh, is already totally taken care of via our heap leach demonstration plant. So we fundamentally de-risked our project by operating that plant for about three years. And again, that's a risk that investors would normally be watching very carefully. You don't need a lot of metallurgical confidence to put out a scoping study. Uh, that degree of confidence needs to increase for a PFS and it needs to become uh, somewhat absolute by the time you publish a DFS, as we did already. So that means that we can get this feasibility phase done pretty quickly and certainly very inexpensively for such a large project. And from there, what we expect and certainly hope is that once our DFS is completed, let's call it mid next year, we're then in a position to have a market that's supportive of our project moving forward to final investment decision and financing. Okay. Um, and you mentioned, obviously, you're planning on being in production in uh, 2025. Um, what will the world's uh, demand for uranium look like then? And again, I suppose that's a bit of a prediction and a million dollar question. But I suppose with, with your studies and your knowledge, how would you see the, the demand for uranium at that particular time? Well, we expect that the demand for uranium will be significantly greater than mine supply at that point. And probably the best numbers to talk to are the World Nuclear Association numbers rather than our own modelling, which is not pub, uh, public. So the WNA numbers, they, they have a nuclear fuel report that is published every two years. And I know these numbers very well because I'm chair of the Demand Working Group, which is the body that's responsible for forecasting global uranium demand out to 2040. So the features that contribute to 2025 being a very favourable time to be delivering into this market are several fold. First of all, uh, demand is increasing. So uh, we're pleased to say that total nuclear energy production today is greater than it was before Fukushima and on a steady growth trajectory driven by all of the things that we've talked about in terms of the urgent need to address climate change and all of the very positive attributes of nuclear power and a greater understanding amongst the public that their fears of nuclear power just aren't supported by science or fact. So that's demand. Now, supply is a very different story, and that is because of the four largest uranium mines, uh, of the 10 largest uranium mines in the world, four of those will be turning off over the next decade. And in fact, two of those have already turned off this year. So the Ranger uranium mine in Australia and the Comanac uranium mines in Niger have both ceased to operate after um, a combined operation period of more than 50 years. 
On top of that, we're seeing a number of uranium mines around the world that are depleting in their production. So their production levels are slowing as they get to deeper parts of their ore body or more expensive parts of their ore body. So the third factor that really contributes to this deficit starting from 2025 is what I referred to before, and that is the underinvestment in production capacity in this sector. So all of the majors in this sector have put capital works on hold and their public numbers bear that out. And also the juniors in this sector, such as ourselves, uh, it's been such a difficult and deep bear market and our share prices have uh, been so ravaged by this bear market that it's very hard to invest serious amounts of money into creating new production capacity. So you add on to that the fact that uranium still has a lot of the challenges that we've talked about, which makes social acceptance difficult in many countries. Um, Political interference is still rife in many countries, including most of Australia, where uranium mining is banned. And you also get a, a level of environmental scrutiny that, whilst it's very appropriate, it nonetheless slows projects down. And so if a project doesn't have environmental approvals already in the bag, such as we do, you, can, you don't have a lot of confidence predicting when that project will be ready to deliver. So we think that demand will be strong, supply is depleting, we've got an existing deficit that will need to be addressed, and when we look around the sector as a whole, there's very few projects that we can identify that we think are capable of being in production by 2025. And that's why we think that that timing will work very well for getting a tango into production and doing so at prices that will really maximise shareholder value and also the value proposition for all of our stakeholders. Um, so with the obviously uranium price at around uh, $30 a pound, How's that impacting your project at the moment? Well, the first impact is that our project won't be built unless uranium prices double and more. So it makes no sense for us to build our project at, at a uranium price that doesn't produce a healthy return to shareholders. I think shareholders have been very patient over many years in our company. And with the level of confidence that we've got in the extent of the price recovery, we are quite happy to be patient to wait for a price that we think reflects the supply-demand reality, and that's well north of $60 a pound. So, but in the nearer term, what it's done is it's obviously creating a lot of challenges for us as a management team and a board uh, because uh, we need to rely on stakeholders, including our investors, who agree with us and accept our view that there is a serious deficit in the sector that can't be addressed without a price reaction and without a serious correction in the price of, uh, of this uh, commodity. Um, so it, it has presented challenges and it's very different running a uranium company to running a copper or a gold company, for example. Uh, and it's not only the economic challenge, but also those environmental, political and social issues that I talked about. Yeah. Um, you've obviously been the CEO since 2016 um, and obviously throughout the bear market. Um, how's the company fared over that period of time um, and what strategies do you think um, have worked um, since, since then to now? 
Well, it's obviously been a really tough time, but I'm very proud to say that the company's fared quite well. When I came into the role in March 2016, the uranium price was $33 a pound and our share price was $0.03 cents a share. Um, uranium over that period dipped as low as under $18 a pound in 2017, but then um, has now recovered almost back to that level. So we're at about $30 a pound now. But over that period, our share price has now recovered to a range of between 13 and 15 cents. So we've seen, I think, a very effective stewarding of shareholder value over that period of time. And we've done that whilst also moving the project forward. So the, the development of our Tango 8 development uh, proposition is really a game changer for us as a company. It gives us a degree of flexibility that we didn't have before. So now we have the choice between building a smaller project with lower development hurdles that can get into production sooner versus a choice of building the already completed um, development process or already completed feasibility process on a giant size project. And we also have an intermediate choice where we could build the smaller Tango 8 project and once in production, expand that production capability to meet the market. So other than giving us that extra flexibility while still preserving the exceptional leverage that Bannerman's got to the uranium price, um, it's also dramatically decreased the capital requirements for us to get into production. So with the initial uh, conceived Tango project, the pre-production capital was just shy of 800 million US dollars. And that was a difficult number to digest when you've got a junior company who's beaten up in a bear market like the rest of the sector. And at times, uh, I think when I joined the company, our market capitalization was about $20 million. Um, now we're in a slightly healthier position with a market capitalization of about $150 million. And more importantly, with a Tango 8, we've decreased that pre-production capital from just shy of 800 million down to 254 million. So that makes it a lot easier and a lot more realistic to get into production. Um, we've also improved the economics a lot. So the incentive price for us to get into production has come down by about $10 a pound from $75 a pound to $65 a pound um, and possibly lower. So as a minimum threshold number, that's more attractive. Um, in terms of some of the things that we've done, Rob, to that have underscored that progress, look, I think the first thing that we've done is been extremely disciplined on expenditure and on cost. Uh, we've got a very effective culture of conserving and respecting the money that's been entrusted to us by shareholders. We've got a very value-focused approach to what we do. Um, so we tend to spend all of our money basically in the ground. There's some inevitable corporate costs that go with that, uh, but we've, over the last couple of years, all but shut down our investor relations expenditure and preferred outlets such as social media and com direct communication with shareholders instead, so that more money is available to be spent on the value generative aspects of our company, which is our project and which is our project development in Namibia. Um, we've also invested very heavily in ESG, which for most of my career was called CSR or corporate social responsibility. And we've got a tremendous inventory of social projects 
and a wonderful reputation for environmental stewardship in Namibia as a result of that. So the one budget that hasn't been cut in all of those 10 years since Fukushima is our CSR or our ESG budget. And I'm very pleased to say that that's turned out to be an excellent return on investment because of where it now positions us as a company. Yeah. But they've, they've been predominantly the actions that we've taken. Um, from time to time, we've had to consider the degree on which we would raise money and spend money. And I think we can say that we've called that effectively. In 2016, uh, we were able to raise money at the three cents, um, which was a good result in those very difficult circumstances. The next raising was in 2018 when we raised at 4.6 cents. And then uh, earlier this year, we raised at 10.5 cents. And as I say, we're now trading in a range of 13 to 15 cents, which I think represents fair value for where we're at at the moment, but doesn't obviously factor in and price in the potential for uranium to uh, increase as I think it inevitably will. So it's been a difficult few years, but we're very much at an inflection point now. And I'm, uh, I'm proud of what we've done and I'm very much looking forward to what we've got next. Yeah. Before we talk about um, ESG, um, I've noticed obviously you've had some interesting roles um, within obviously the, the nuclear industry um, and in the uh, Nibia uh, Chamber of Mines. Um, how do you manage all these additional um, things that you do, uh, uh, obviously with your role with the, as the CEO and doing all these, um, being part of all these other associations? Well, I've been very careful to only um, engage in roles that are core business for us. Um, and it doesn't always work that way. Um, I do see peers across the resources sector engage in roles that either deliberately offer diversity um, and broaden their experience or sometimes um, have perceived profiling advantages. And that, that's where the risk is that people get distracted. Um, so I've been with the um, consent of my board, very disciplined with this. So for example, the role with the World Nuclear Association's Nuclear Fuel Demand Working Group, um, that's core business for us at a strategic level to understand all of that. Um, we have our own modelling, we have our own views on the sector, and it's useful to have access to another organisation's thinking and modelling, which is, which is what we have with WNA and all of the, uh, the insights and all of the contacts that we have with that. So I would say that that's more of a, in the category of a more effective way of doing core business than it would otherwise be. And I might add that this isn't the sort of role that you can just put your hand up for and arrive at the committee, you know, it was at the, uh, the result of an election process. And uh, so it probably carries some of those other benefits that I referred to. It's just that it, um, it's done in a way that directly benefits Bannerman and the board strategy. And um, the same could be said for the Chamber of Mines, I think. So my role there, apart from um, Bannerman serving on the council of the Chamber of Mines, has been a strategic advisor on the mining charter. Uh, a mining charter is a sectoral charter that basically agrees between industry and government what measures the industry will take for transformation. And in the African context, particularly in Namibia, which was a former colony of South Africa, that transformation is centred around addressing historical um, disadvantage 
uh, that came initially through colonialization and then, of course, through apartheid. So playing a pivotal role in that has been not only important from the perspective of our values and our ethics as a company, but it's also been vital to offer our board as good a strategic uh, perspective on these issues as we possibly can. And there's no better way of having that strategic view than being right at the heart of these issues, as I've had the privilege of doing through having that role with the Chamber of Mines. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about ESG, and obviously it seems a, a, a passion of yours, um, and it seems to be a sort of a bit of a buzzword in the resources sector sort of more recently. Um, how have you sort of, how, how have you a, a deep background in um, all three aspects of ESG, um, and how does that help your company? Well, yeah, you're right. I do um, have a good background across the environment, the social and the government's aspect. Um, environment, particularly as it pertains to our company, um, my first uh, role with Bannerman was to undertake the environmental and social impact assessment and develop the management plans in conjunction with our team of consultants. That was the reason why I moved to Namibia in 2009. And as a result of that, we obtained our environmental approvals for the Atango project. Um, my first role, my first executive role in the resources sector was with the McRae's gold mine, which we floated as Oceana Gold back in 2004. And that mine operated under the New Zealand environmental regime, which certainly then and probably to this day remains the most stringent environmental regime in the world. And so for me, being my first experience in all of this, that just seemed normal to me. And I assumed that all mines in all jurisdictions surely operated that way. And of course, you find out that there is a, a, a continuum on which both companies operate and uh, regulators operate. But I still have believed and continue to operate in Bannerman in a way that respects that very highest possible um, best practice approach to environmental aspects. And so that's fortunately well reflected in Bannerman's reputation in country um, amongst environmentalists and conservationists. Um, now, the other thing is living in Namibia, it, it's a paradise for conservationists. And I um, was fortunate to be engaged in that as well. So uh, amongst other things, I was a trustee of the Save the Rhino Trust Namibia, which is one of the highest profile uh, conservation NGOs in all of Africa. And that was a challenging role, but a very rewarding one in which we saw some huge progress that so far, Touchwood, has staved off the extinction of the desert-adapted black rhino. Um, so it's, it's something special to say that you've played a direct role in preserving such an iconic species as the desert-adapted. Very involved uh, across CSR, as it was then called, and was the architect of Bannerman's initial CSR charter and program and because of that work and the excellent work that's been undertaken since then by my colleague Werner Ewald, uh, Bannerman's regarded as the leader particularly amongst the development countries uh, companies in Namibia. So when the Chamber of Mines has a expo and a conference uh, their go-to on social issues is Bannerman and either Werner or myself will then present on those topics um, and then, look, governance, I think coming from a legal background, I'm well-placed 
for many years to think about governance issues and advising boards on these issues was a significant part of what I did when I was in legal private practice. Um, and I, I've since translated that into the industry. I've got a uh, postgraduate diploma in governance and uh, for a number of years, I was uh, the governance advisor to the Namibian Uranium Association. So whilst governance is important, generally speaking, because of ESG dynamics and because of the expectations of investors with the advent of ESG, it's got a particularly um, grave importance when it comes to the uranium sector, because our downstream industry, the nuclear industry, operates under such incredibly strict governance protocols that go all the way to the International Atomic Energy Agency, nuclear safeguards, um, non-proliferation issues, and all of the very stringent requirements that attach to those, both at a company level and a multilateral level. Yeah. Um, what do you think are the biggest ESG opportunities for Bannerman? Well, it, at this stage, it's just telling the world what we've achieved. Uh, for many years, we did this wonderful work, like really heartwarming work in Namibia. As I said before, we've touched the lives of so many people. We've influenced the industry in a in a very effective way. We've encouraged other companies to adopt our success stories and promote them and expand them. Um, all of this great stuff that we've done, um, even before I joined the company in 2009, but certainly since then. But we didn't uh, promote it in any way. We took the view that it was better to just do these things quietly rather than put our heads up and risk being the target of the anti-uranium groups around the world none of which operated in Namibia, but from time to time they would uh, think it's their duty, I suppose, as campaigners to come down um, into other countries and interfere with what was being done. So we've got this wonderful backlog, this inventory, this catalogue of these amazing stories. And so what we're doing at the moment is we've just started releasing those via Twitter and I'm releasing them via LinkedIn, short little stories that uh, any of your audience who you know wants to feel good about what's happening in the resources sector, I'd encourage them to have a look at some of those. Um, now, going forward, uh, there are tremendous opportunities across the uranium sector for ESG investing. And that's because what we do goes to the absolute heart of positive ESG contributions into the key challenge that the world faces right now, which is climate mitigation. We manufacture the unsubstitutable fuel source for the world's only baseload 24-7 emissions-free source of energy that doesn't come from hydropower. Um, hydropower has its own environmental issues and so is, is becoming less and less of a viable choice these days. And nuclear energy is, uh, has an incredibly important role to play both in its own right, but also in terms of stabilising renewable energies which by definition are intermittent and will be for many years until storage capacity improves. So we are playing a direct and indispensable role in solving a very large proportion of the world's climate challenges. And that's something that uh, isn't well understood in the world. We're still kind of put into that category of mining where by definition, people regard mining as being a bit dirty until proven clean. And we're saying, no, it's not like that at all. We are mining as a very small part of an impact 
that then gets escalated and amplified hundreds of times because of the power of nuclear technology and our capacity as the nuclear industry to do this incredible and important work. Yeah. Um, got one more question. Um, you were a keynote speaker recently at the World Nuclear uh, Fuel Conference um, on the topic of ESG. Um, what does the uranium sector need to do from an ESG perspective, from your point of view? Um, and are they fulfilling those um, obligations? Well, in addition to, I suppose, talking about and selling ourselves a bit better as to the great work that as an industry we collectively do, there is a pressing need for the uranium sector and the nuclear sector at large to be more engaged in the ESG discussion, not with investors, but with the groups that set the, uh, the benchmarks on which ESG will be evaluated. We've got a fairly small window of time in which to do that. It's still quite fluid, but no one can tell you absolutely what the rules of ESG investing are. Um, there's some categories of investing that are clearly in. There's some like thermal coal that are clearly out. And nuclear should be on all measures clearly and uh, firmly in the category of ESG investing. But the industry needs to do a little bit more to make sure that that is the actual outcome and that some of the louder, more emotional voices that come from anti-nuclear activists uh, do not deprive the world of the financing advantages that will come from ESG investment funds applying fully to nuclear and the upstream investment into uranium mining. Okay. Brandon, really appreciate your time in uh, taking the time to do and, and obviously teach our audience uh, about uranium. I've certainly got a, uh, got a few things from you. Uh, like I said, I have been studying the industry a lot more and investing in the industry for the last six, six months or so. Um, and I think it's it's good that you're out there promoting the industry because it is a clean it is a clean uh, source of energy, um, and I think it, that message needs to get out there to the to the wider community. Not just obviously this podcast is predominantly um, mining mining professionals who may know some, some things about uranium, but not everything. So really appreciate your time um, in uh, giving a giving a talk uh, around this on our podcast. Um, if our audience wants to reach out to you, obviously you mentioned you're on um, LinkedIn. Is there other ways that um, they can contact you if they want some more information or have some questions they may want to ask you? Sure. The best way to stay plugged in is either um, following me on Twitter or connecting with me on LinkedIn. And best just to um, say that you've heard me on this podcast or wherever and you'd like to connect in and talk about uranium and nuclear energy. Um, the alternatives are you can go to Bannerman's website, uh, bannermanresources.com and that'll then direct you through to contact alternatives but uh, there, we've got a very vibrant community on twitter in particular and for both industry players and investors i think that's a great place to start and for someone who really is at the beginning of their journey of understanding uranium or nuclear energy that's a great place to surround yourself with the debate Yes, certainly. I mean, myself, I'm I'm normally on LinkedIn as a recruiter, but I've um I've started discovering Twitter a lot a lot more now. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting uh, debates and 
um, and topics that um, people should um, should should look at Twitter, especially for for more information. So I encourage uh, encourage our listeners to um, to um, sign up if they haven't already got a Twitter account. Um, appreciate if our audience can also um, share share this podcast. I mean, friends, family, industry contacts. Um, I think uranium isn't a, a topic that's generally spoke about within the industry, or just generally speaking within the mi- within the mining industry. So I appreciate if you can uh, share this uh, episode, whether you're listening to it on the podcast or the YouTube channel. Um, appreciate if you can like, like I always say, if you can share and like um, these episodes and get more people aware of of the industry and, and obviously educate them educate them around uh, around uranium because it is going to be here for a while um and we start we're at the start of a of a bull market and the the uranium is needed um for for our electricity um so um yeah appreciate if you can uh, share share this episode and like it um so more people can um can listen to it um so until next time happy mining thank you for listening Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.